it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight, Andrew and I are going to do a bird's eye view of IBM, International Business Machines. We're going to talk about the company a little bit, maybe some things you can look for, talk a little bit about a hurdle rate for me that would prevent me from looking further into a company like this, possibly. For those of you new to the podcast, we might discuss some things that are a little above beginner today. If you are not familiar with these terms, please check out our episodes 43 through 47. These are a great foundation to give you a base of learning what stocks are and all the great stuff. And that'll help give you a better understanding of what we're going to discuss tonight. So without giving it away yet, I thought we could talk a little bit about that. So Andrew, what are your, I guess, initial thoughts on IBM? So similar to what we discussed in the first bird's eye view, which was Walmart, I want to look at a company's top line, their revenue, And I want to see growth and growth that's tracking pretty well. And so when I say pretty well, I mean, it's at least getting close to GDP or somewhere around there. And that's in most of the cases. So when I look at IBM, that's definitely not the case. There seems to be this very long-term trend. If I pull up on quickfs.net from 2012 all the way down to 2021, revenue's almost gone in half. And that line has looked pretty consistently lower. I mean, there are a few ups in there, but it's not a good trend, at least over the last 10 years. So for me, that's something that I don't consider further when I look at a company like this. But what stood out to you when you first pulled up IBM? Well, that obviously was one of the first things that I noticed right away, because when you look at the income statement of a company, that's obviously the top line is the first thing you're going to notice. And you know, I'm looking at a smaller snapshot here. So I only had like five years to look at and it was down 
a fair amount in the five years. So that wasn't encouraging, but it may not be a deal killer quite yet. But as I look farther down the income statement, so as we kind of go down the income statement, you talk about the revenues, the cost of goods sold, which are what it costs for the business to you know, generate those sales in materials typically or things of that nature. And then we look at the operating expenses. So things like R&D or SG&A, which stands for selling general and administration or marketing. So any of those kinds of things, those are generally what you look at to kind of determine what the operating income of the business is. So you take the cost of goods sold and the operating expenses, and that's how much it takes for IBM to generate the revenues. And that's the profit that they have left over after they pay for those expenses, because every company as great as they are, including Apple, (laughs) has to pay for those expenses to generate the revenues that they do. And so it's also a bit of a proxy, if you will, for free cash flow. And we can talk about that a little bit later. But when you're looking at a company, one of the things that I always try to want to look at is see that if the company is profitable on a operating income level. And then I also want to see if that's going to generate, if that's going to translate into free cash flow. I don't I personally don't look at earnings a whole lot because there can be some gobbledygook in between the operating expenses and the the net income that can sometimes make it a little questionable. And I'm not saying that there's out and out fraud, but there's just sometimes things can be manipulated a little bit. So anyway, when I'm looking at a company like IBM, the first thing that jumps out at me when I looked at the operating income is I see their margins and their operating margins have dropped from 17.7% in 2016 to the latest 12 months at 11%. That's not a good sign. And so it kind of matches that the revenues are going down. But here's an interesting thing. If you look at the percentage of year-over-year change, it doesn't match the drop in revenues, which tells me that they're not controlling their expenses very well. So in other words, when revenues drop, they're not adjusting for that in the other expenses that it cost them to to run the business. And sometimes things like R&D will fluctuate a little bit or may even be going up if the company is really trying to ramp up a product or a project or something. I get that. When you see those numbers consistently going up versus the revenues coming down, that means that the operating income that the company generates is going to be on a steady decline. And that that's not something you want to see. So for me, if I was, you know, screening for companies and I saw something that like I do with IBM, that would be for me a hard pass. I'm like, oh, we're done here. (laughs) I don't need to dig any further because that's not what I want to see. It makes sense. You know, I'm not like a growth stock expert, but I've kind of noticed just from afar, it seems like you want the, you generally want to see the opposite. So growth stock investors don't really care if the margin is small, just as long as it's getting better over time. What you're describing is the opposite case where the margin's getting worse over time. At the top of my head, I can't think of a situation where that's something Optimal. that investors want to see, <laughs> right? No. Because even if if you're sacrificing margin, so to say, you should see revenue going up to basically say, hey, we're spending and we're at least growing sales because of it. Yeah, exactly. And I'm not a growth investor either. I certainly read about the stuff and I understand the concepts to a certain extent. And it's not something I generally adhere to. But one of the things that I do know is you kind of want to start to see some form of 
of operating leverage where you see that the company is able to leverage those costs, those expenses to generate more revenue. And ideally, people can't see my hands here, but you like to see the revenue go up and the operating expenses either stay flat or go down. That indicates that the company has operating leverage, which means that they're able to more efficiently use the expenses and costs that they have to generate higher margins, which gives them more money to do other things, whether it's reinvest in the company, whether it's buy back shares, pay a dividend, depending on where the company is in their life cycle. The world is their oyster if they have, you know, bigger margins. And that's what makes a company like Visa, for example, so ridiculous is that, you know, they have 80 or 90% gross, 85, 90% gross margins and 60% plus operating margins, which means they have lots and lots of money to play with to figure out how to do things. And a company like IBM is kind of on the opposite spectrum of that right now, where you see the margins contracting, which means that they have less available money to go out and do the things that they need to do to grow. And that's what makes it hard when you see those kinds of things. And, you know, IBM is a legacy company. I know they've been trying really hard to work towards becoming a bigger player in the cloud, but Amazon and Microsoft and Google have already kind of beaten them to the punch and they're kind of Johnny come lately in that, but it doesn't mean it's, they don't make good products, but you know, you can see it in the numbers. Sometimes my buddy Oswald Damodoran likes to say that the numbers tell us a story. It's our job as an analyst, depending on what a level of analyst we are is to d- interpret those numbers and figure out what that story is that they're trying to tell us. And I think when you look at a company like IBM, the story is telling me that things are probably going in the wrong direction. I'm not predicting any sort of bankruptcy or anything like that, but it just looks like the company is not trending in the right direction and that they're either living on their past or there are the products and services that they're offering people just aren't enticing to people and they're having trouble selling them to people to make it relevant. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. 
After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. I think it's a great example because one of the reasons a company could have revenues that fall is because they could be splitting off parts of their business. We touched on that with the AT&T episode where we talked about the spinoff for AT&T. And so sometimes you'll see businesses do that where they're breaking pieces off and they're getting smaller, but they could still be executing well if the margin's going in the right direction. So, you know, seeing that not happening, at least now as we look at it today, mm-hmm. makes for another good way to screen out for companies that maybe aren't going to give you the growth that you're hoping for. I like the example with Visa having really high operating margin. So we talked about the trend in operating margin. And then we also talked about kind of higher low levels. In your opinion, which of those is more important? Is it the trend in operating margin or is it the operating margin level itself, or does it depend? Yeah, our favorite two words, it depends. It really comes down to, I think it really comes down to the business that they're in. And let's take opposite ends of the spectrum. If you look at Visa, because of the nature of their business, it's a very asset light, very capital light type of business. Most of the foundation that they run off of was established a long, long time ago. And So at this point, they aren't really in a position where they're really having to innovate a lot. They do to keep their edge, but they're not really out there really pushing to really, I guess, create something new. So they aren't investing a ton comparatively, and their margins are huge. Likewise, on the flip side of that is a company like Costco, which has really, really low margins because of the nature of their business. They're a retail business that basically sells everything for, was it 14% above cost or something crazy like that? I think they have like a set margin that they offer to, to it's be, really it's low. really low. And so, and that includes, that doesn't include compensating for employees, insurance, power, the buildings, I mean, all the stuff that goes into that 14%. So I don't know off the top of my head what Costco's margins there are, but I want to say four or 5% somewhere in that range and maybe a little higher than that, but they're low and especially low comparatively to a company like Visa. But if you look at a company like Costco, you want to see those margins stay even 
or even creep up a little bit depending on whether they – some of that for Costco is going to depend on their subscription model. If they raise those prices, that could help them increase that operating margin. It's a very well-run company. They're very cost-efficient, and they're very focused on that because they understand that there isn't a lot of room for error for them because of the nature of their business. And we looked at Walmart a little while ago. They're kind of the same kind of idea where they, they're a low-cost provider, so they, they offer things for a very, very small margin. And Amazon, their retail side is, is kind of the same idea. It's just a very, very small margin. So there isn't a lot of room to play with. So I guess it really kind of, you have to, for me, I always try to look at it in the lens of what kind of business do they operate in? If it's a payments company, it's going to be a lot higher than if it's a bank. And if it's a retail, it's going to be lower than, let's say, some sort of technology company like an Apple or something or Microsoft, just because of the nature of what they're looking at. But if you look at Microsoft versus, I don't know, CrowdStrike, Cloudflare, Okta, Snowflake, you know, any of those companies, then you get a better sense of maybe how they're doing margin wise. So that, I guess that's kind of what I look at. What about you? What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Yeah, that's a great answer. I mean, I would, I would basically say the same thing. You got to take the margin in context with the other competitors in its industry. And also as it trends between itself, is it getting better, staying the same, getting worse? Mm-hmm. Those are all really important things. The only thing I'll add is this was a pretty big epiphany for me when I realized it because Costco is a good example of, you know, their margins are so small that we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars in revenues every year. Now, when your operating margins like 3% on that, Let's say that's on 200 billion. I'll use a, a 2% to make it easy. That's 4 billion, right? So if you improve that just by 1%, and what I mean by that is you get from 2% to 3%, you've just added another basically 50% growth. I don't know if, if those numbers make sense just hearing them, but basically you go from 4 billion to help me here you, with the, you go from 4 billion to 6 billion. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Add, 4 billion to 6 billion. You're adding the 2 billion, which is a 50% increase. Correct. If Visa were to go from 68% to 69%, it's the same 1%, but because it's starting at 68%, it's not making a difference to, to profit. So that's, doesn't move the needle. So that's why with lower margin businesses, you'll tend to see more of an emphasis on that kind of stuff. And then higher margin businesses like Netflix or Facebook, everybody's focused on the top line because they don't really care about the costs because the margins are already so high that the difference in costs generally is not going to be that much. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's a good insight. How do you think a pricing power would impact an operating margin or would it? Yeah, it would. It should. Depends on the environment, right? If, if you have high inflation, like we've been seeing lately, you just need pricing power to just kind of keep up with inflation. Then the operating margin stays the same. If you have an environment where inflation isn't that bad, but you sell pricing power, now you get that operating leverage that you were talking about earlier, where we couldn't see your hands, but the, <laughs> the revenue was opening up while the expenses stay down and you're getting this nice shark bite mouth opening up and really unlocking. That's where you can get multiplication of earnings. And I know Coca-Cola in the 80s, I was uh, late 80s 
through the 90s for Warren Buffett, they had serious growth from the operating leverage. Yeah. It's when you find a company that has that, that is, those are some of the things that you really want to focus in on. And it can help you find great investments that compound your returns over a long periods of time because the market will reward companies like that. And when you see that kind of thing, that's something you really want to pay attention to. The pricing power directly affects the gross margin. And it also flows to the, the operating margin as well. And the more that Apple can charge for an iPhone, the more it's going to help their operating margins and their gross margins along the way. And that's, that can help the company really improve their earnings as well as our returns. And that's really what we want. And that's why finding these strong companies that have that pricing power, as much as we hate paying an extra dollar for our Domino's pizza, we love it when we see that on the income statement of the company, because that means it's translating to more money for the company, which means they can, if it's good management, then it translates to better returns for the company, which in turn translates to better returns for us. That's why a lot of the stuff that we talk about is kind of so interconnected. You know, finding companies that have strong finance, finding companies that have strong products and pricing power that they can improve their prices without affecting how many people buy their units. You know, Netflix, when they raise their prices, does that really, we don't know. It does it affect how many subscribers they have. It's kind of hard to tell right now, but that could be something that's going on right now is that they have raised the prices over the last year or so, and they're also losing subscribers. So maybe Netflix doesn't have pricing power. Maybe it's not an essential that we all thought it was. We don't know, but these are all questions that you need to ask yourself when you're looking at a company, whether it's IBM or whether it's Texas Roadhouse or whether it's Texas Instruments or whether it's Costco. You just, you kind of have to, those are all questions you have to kind of try to factor in when you're looking at it. But it also goes back to the management as well, because if you got this great company that's doing awesome things and generating all this income from you know, a great product, a great design, a great service, whatever it is that they offer, but then management kind of mishandles that money. And then, you know, that great product over a period of time is not going to be so great because mm-hmm. they're going to have to keep reinvesting, keep it where it is or to keep it better growing and make it relevant for people. Otherwise, that's going to be money squandered. And that's why understanding and having a little bit of knowledge about management and whatnot can help you a lot. To kind of take that idea a little bit further, to try to unpack like what, what about IBM? Why is their margins declining? I'm not an expert in IBM. I've looked at the company. I'm aware of generally what they do. Something that stood out to me though is if you look at their cash flow statement, they spent $31 billion on an acquisition in 2019. That was Red Hat. People generally look favorably on that because they basically injected new life into an old tech stodgy company and they they finally brought something into the business that actually grows <laughs> basically but if you look at 2021 they made another pretty splashy acquisition i don't know if it was one i think it was several acquisitions but basically in the cash flow statement it's saying 3.1 billion dollars towards acquisitions yeah. and so you start to wonder you're talking about how management's using money and obviously management's going to do things to try to turn things around but you start to wonder if you're making acquisitions and the margin's not going up, it's going down after the acquisition. If you don't have revenue growth on that, that's really strong and compelling. Are they potentially even squandering what little is left? Yeah. I don't know the answer to that for IBM, but just in general, that could be another thing to think oh, about. That's a great insight. And for those of you that 
aren't quite following what we're talking about. When you kind of look at the the three big financial statements, the income statement, the balance sheet, and the cash flow statement, income statement flows into the cash flow statement, which flows into the balance sheet. And so the net income that's at the bottom of the income statement goes directly to the top of the cash flow statement. And if you follow along with us on your favorite website, whatever that might be, you'll see that the net income matches exactly what the net income was on the income statement. And at the bottom of that is a line item called cash from operations. And that basically tells us how much money or how much cash IBM has generated from that net income from the income statement. And think of the cash flow statement, I guess an easy way to think of it, I've always think, thought of it, is it's kind of like the, the checkbook of the business. It's the money going in and the money going out. And the money left over is money we get to use to spend on other things. And so one of the things that a lot of companies will do is they will use that cash from operations, which is kind of a quickie way of seeing what kind of cash flow the company can produce. And if we want to look at cash flow just in general, you're looking at cash from operations less capital expenditures. And if you look at those two line items, that'll tell you what kind of free cash flow the company is generating. And generally, once they have that number, they have choices to make with all that stuff. Now, Andrew was just pointing out acquisitions. So if you notice on the cash flow statement, it's trended downwards over the last five or six years by a lot. And that's not good. That's never good because the free cash flow is what the company really can reinvest back in the business. And like Andrew was saying, it looks like they're choosing to buy other companies in an effort to try to stimulate growth. And one of the things about companies that do acquisitions, there's the good and there's the not so good. <laughs> and there's not a whole lot in between. And so a lot of serial acquirers, companies like Constellation Software or Roper Technologies or Danaher or Thermo Fisher, these are all companies that buy a lot of companies. They have teams that work for them, that their whole job is to integrate these businesses with their business. And they have systems, they have processes, they have people that have been doing it for years, decades. So they have lots of experience. They're very good at it. And they're also very good at finding companies that will be a good match for their company, as well as being able to integrate well with the current culture. And so it's not just about you know, hey, let's go out and buy this because this will be a great addition for our business. If the culture is completely opposite and the systems are completely opposite, it's going to take lots of money and lots of time to integrate those. Meanwhile, you're paying for all of the cost of buying that business. Like they bought Red Hat for $32 billion or so, and they had to take on a lot of debt to do that as well as using some of the cash flow that they, they generate. So it became a very expensive proposition. And if they don't see... Like Andrew said, if they don't see revenue growth from that in a relatively decent amount of time, then that's not a good thing. And that's what sets some of these companies that acquire companies and integrate them really well apart from the ones that do not. And I think McKinsey did a study, and I think it's what, 60, 70, maybe 80% of all acquisitions don't achieve the goals that the CEO state that they're going to state. Most of them are either revenue synergies, which means they're going to be able to integrate the business and, and see a lot of revenue growth from it, or it's cost efficiencies, like eliminating doubled up sectors and that kind of thing. But most of the 
acquisitions don't achieve either one of those targets. It ends up being a, a costly mistake for shareholders. And that's why companies like Berkshire Hathaway with Warren Buffett or Google and Microsoft and all the other ones I mentioned, those are really good companies that make great acquisitions that do a good job of integrating, for the most part, the acquisitions, and they end up performing well for the parent company. And so I think that's one of the things about IBM is I think the jury is still out on this red hat acquisition and whether it's going to pay off for the company and, you know, in essence, save their bacon <laughs> over the next few years or not. And I think that's what people are kind of maybe treading water on the company waiting for to see. I don't know. It's an interesting observation. Yeah. And that's a very good one. And a lot, a lot of like wisdom unpacked there. And I hope people use that to, to look at margins, take margins seriously and also take acquisitions seriously because they can be great ways to grow and they can also be great ways to kill value. Yeah, absolutely. So what's your verdict on, uh, on this one? Yeah. I think it's obvious, <laughs> but a hard path. This is going to be a no. And it, it's kind of interesting that we chose this because I've been kind of starting to go down the rabbit hole of cloud providers and some of that. And so I've been reading about some of these companies and this is, this is totally anecdotal. So take it for what it's worth. But I read somewhere not too long ago that people that can't get real jobs at like Google and Microsoft and stuff, they go to work at IBM. So you know, I don't mean to offend anybody <laughs> that works at IBM and please. I don't have any proof of any of this, but that's just, I read that somewhere that some analysts said that about IBM. So I guess take that for what it's worth. Yeah. For the type of investing I do, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be investors out there who can know when IBM is cheap, buy it quickly when it's cheap, sell it quickly when it gets expensive. That's not really my thing. I like to buy and hold for the long term. So for me, it doesn't pass for all those great reasons that Dave said. All right, folks. Well, with that, we will go ahead and wrap up our bird's eye view of IBM. And I hope you guys enjoyed our discussion on that company as well as the ideas behind operating margins, operating leverage, cost of goods sold, free cash flow, acquisitions, all kinds of fun stuff we talked about. If you are new to the podcast, we have beginner episodes that you could go back and listen to. I would highly recommend you do that just to kind of give you a, a good base for all the things that you're going to learn as you listen to our show. They are episodes 43 through 47. You can find them on any of your podcast players. And I would strongly encourage you to listen to them if you're like, I have no idea what you guys are talking about tonight. That will help give you a good basis to kind of start learning about the stock market and everything that we are trying to teach. Also, we have a website, investingforbeginners.com, that has this huge search bar at the top that you cannot miss that has, you can find almost everything that we talked about today on our website, operating margins, operating leverage, acquisitions. We have articles about all that stuff to help you learn a little deeper about some of the things that we talked about. You can add those to your toolkit of analysis. So I hope that helps you guys. And without any further ado, I'll go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. 
Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.